This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Well, thanks very much for joining us as we sit here in the first week in November. Uh, hopefully you all voted. Um, uh, going to chat with, with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times because a lot has gone on in a very short period of time. And I mean, we're talking just over a week since the World Series ended, but for the Rays, a lot has happened. And Mark, why don't we start with the awards first? Because that's the good, um, at least in the case of Blake Snell and Kevin Cash. I think we figured they would be top three. Um, I think we were. I think many were hoping that Joey Wendell would be top three rookie of the year. Didn't get it. Um, I know Blake made quite an endorsement for uh, for Joey not being there and how he should have been. What's your kind of take on on the award situation? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It would have been a, a shock and obviously a much bigger story had Blake Snell not been in the top three for Cy Young. A lot of people think he's the favorite, although I, I don't think it's as automatic as some Rays fans are, are speculating or hoping. And Certainly Kevin Cash deserves to be in the top three, although I wasn't sure because I know there was also some chatter about support for Aaron Boone and, and you know where that was going to fall. But Kevin Cash certainly belonged, rightfully belonged, with Bob Melvin and Boston's Alex Cora as far as the top three managers in the American League. And the case of Joy Wendell was interesting, and I, I kind of had laid it out the day before mm-hmm. in the Tampa Bay Times that you know this wasn't going to be automatic, and you know there might be some uh, big market bias involved. There might be some age discrimination, so to speak, quote unquote. Uh, with Joey Wendell being 28 years old and, you know, having been up uh, in two previous seasons, he wasn't, you know, your classic rookie. And certainly Shohei Itani is not your classic rookie, having played professionally no. in Japan for five years. But I think that's kind of become accepted. I mean, I remember going back to the Rocco Baldelli-Hideki Matsui conversation you know, years ago as to, you know, was it fair for a, a true rookie like Rocco Baldelli to be competing against uh, Hideki Matsui? And then neither one ended up winning that year. So, uh, just an interesting uh, process always as BBWA in the last few years has switched to, you know, this finalist award show, which kind of gives it a bump basically a week before the announcement and narrows it to the final three. And not always some controversy there is, I think, for the Rays. You know, like I said, I mean, Wendell would have been nice to make the final three, but he wasn't going to win the award anyway. I mean, it's going to come down to Otani and Andujar from the Yankees. So it, it would have been like a, a nice uh, note for the media guide for Dave Haller and Craig Vandercam to use, but I don't think it really would have mattered overall because he wasn't going to win. I think the thing that's interesting for me is how the uh, the advanced metrics are used or sometimes not used. And what I mean by that is J.D. Martinez, obviously in a lot of the major traditional offensive categories, was top three. He's seventh in war. He's not a finalist in terms of uh, the, the MVP voting. Joey Wendell is high in war, yet he's also not a finalist for the Rookie of the Year. And I think he laid out some pretty good reasons, but it's kind of interesting just to see sometimes the advanced metrics are big, sometimes they're not. It may play out that way on the on the Cy Young Award in terms of innings pitch versus all the traditional metrics. Yeah, and I think there's two points to that, Neil. And, and part of it is that, like a lot of other things in baseball, it's always kind of the arguments can be made situationally and accommodating. And 
you know, people that are staunch defenders of one side or the other of scouting versus analytics. And, and yet it always applies to your situation, too. And if you have a guy who's on your team and he's helping your team win, you're going to necessarily overlook what the statistics may say or what the eye test may say. And, you know, we've seen obviously a lot of fallout from the World Series. Should the Dodgers have abandoned their plan? which was, you know, building their lineup based on analytics when they got to the World Series. And that's been a really interesting debate. So I, I think the analytics debate is applicable in many ways. The other thing is you're dealing with, and, and I don't want to indict my colleagues here, but you're dealing with, you know, a voting block that are baseball writers who are also going to be, you know, inherently biased based on what they write, whom they cover, uh, what teams they see more of. It's, I'm not saying that it's a flawed process because I've seen some of the awards when players vote and managers and coaches vote, and I've seen some of the conversations and heard them in the clubhouse when they're filling out ballots. And I'll tell you this, the baseball writers are better prepared than the players are to cast their ballots, and, and I say that with a lot of certainty. But you're still dealing like in any other election, and we're talking during election season here, uh, that there's going to be some built-in bias. So the process is set up for two writers in each American League city, which should overcome any bias, but also where there's not enough voters and voters are shared. National writers uh, get ballots in certain cities. So it's not going to be a true uh, geographical separation. And there's going to be writers, like I say, that some are more uh, leaning toward analytics. Some are leaning more toward eye tests. Some are very uh, adamant about which side of that they're on. And the voting uh, base rotates between each award. The chapter chairman, I'm the chapter chairman here in Tampa Bay, assigns the voters each year. And you know, I, I think the writers who cover the team the most should vote for MVP, so I kind of stick to that formula. Other markets, other chapters, they rotate it uh, regardless of whether you cover the team every day or you're more of a columnist or a backup writer. So it's just a unique voting block. That was a really long-winded answer, but just to give you an idea of why there is no absolute in the voting for any of these awards. And and your vote, you vote, did vote for MB, MVP again this year? I wasn't supposed to tell you that, but apparently I just did. So, you didn't yeah. tell me your votes. <laughs> you didn't reveal yeah, did, your vote. I, vote. I did vote for MVP, and like I said, I always feel like it's the lead writer. So when we had two newspapers uh, in town, obviously the Tampa Tribune and the Tampa Bay Times writers were the voters for MVP. We've since allowed the uh, MLB.com writers in. Now, Bill Chastain, the MLB.com writer here, has elected not to participate uh, as a voter the last couple of years. So we've had to spread that around a little bit, too. But... Yeah, I just feel like the MVP is the most prestigious award, so the people who spend the most time covering the game in our chapter should vote for that award. Makes sense. Um, and, and obviously this year the Rays did not have someone who uh, was going to make that group. Uh, I think it was kind of clear who, you know, at least those that were going to be candidates, and we now know the final three. But I want to get now back to the Rays because, again, for a short period of time there's been a lot going on, beginning with the coaching staff. Um, the fact that Matt Quattrero was elevated to bench coach and that the Rays do still have, at least as we speak, two openings to fill, probably one internal, one external from what you've written and, and what you've heard? I, I think so, and it, it's kind of tricky. And, and you know, I, I'm gonna, I'll take the, the, the bullet here if there's any political correctness missing <laughs> from the way I'll explain this. But, you know, Charlie Montoyo did a lot for the Rays, and one of those duties, and just like I said, to put it as simply as possible, was to be – a liaison to the Spanish-speaking players on the staff, on the team. And I think that's, you know, a requirement for almost every team you look around. They're going to want to have a Spanish-speaking mm -hmm. coach because there's just certain messages that are going to be easier to convey uh, to players in their native language. There's certain players, as we know, Neil, some of whom 
have had a lot of success in uh, trying to and learning to speak English and want to speak in English. Others are more comfortable speaking their native language. It's not our place to judge here. If you're a team, you want to get the message across to your players as best as possible. That's why you see teams that have interpreters for Japanese players and some teams have interpreters for Korean players. Um, so I think a Spanish-speaking coach is going to be one of those two hires. Now, from the Rays' standpoint, they have that unique position that Rocco Baldelli filled, and it was built you know, kind of to his skill set, that field coordinator position. They liked what that position provided. They're going to try and fill that again. So I think in their mind, and, and this is my kind of take on this, the easiest resolution here would be to hire that Spanish-speaking coach to also be the third base coach and the infield coach. That's asking for three skill sets from the same person. I think they're going to find those guys out there, whether one fits or not, we'll find out here shortly. But that allows them a lot more flexibility with that field coordinator position. I think if they do get the third base coach under that uh, setup, it's going to come from the outside. They don't have that person in the organization right now. And that's probably something they need to look at because they don't have a lot of Spanish-speaking coaches at the higher levels anywhere in their minor league system. Uh, having said that, it allows them some flexibility. I think if they fill that position from the outside, you certainly would see uh, more likely to go inside. They like to promote from within. That's typically how the Rays like to do mm -hmm. things. I think Jared Sandberg, the AAA manager, Brady Williams, the AA manager, are two guys that you'll hear talked about uh, for that field coordinator position if they go outside for third base coach. If they end up not filling that you know, kind of three-pronged uh, requirement from the third base coach situation, then they could either go outside for a Spanish-speaking field coordinator or maybe an infield coach and do it that way. But somehow those kind of four things that have to be filled, a Spanish-speaking coach, a third base coach, an infield coach and a field coordinator in those two positions. Got it. So it should be an interesting, I would say probably at least a couple of weeks before they, next couple of weeks, they probably filled Yeah, I've heard, I think it's natural to assume that with the GM meetings going on this week, that there's not going to be any decisions made because most of the front office is, you know, on the West Coast in Carlsbad, California. On the other hand, it would also surprise me to think that those front office guys weren't spending some time talking to some candidates who live out there or affiliated with teams out there that it's easier to reach them or sit down with them out there. And I'm sure Kevin Cash is working the phone as he always does. I mean, it's funny, just even like the hiring of the Rangers manager the other day, Chris Woodward, is a friend of Kevin Cash's. Mm -hmm. And he was obviously, he told us, spent a lot of time on the phone with Rocco Baldelli and Charlie Montoyo and with the teams that were interested in them calling to get recommendations on them. So he's been involved in a lot of the things going on in baseball this offseason. And I'm guessing, too, the roster, which has changed probably no major surprises to this point in time. Uh, Jesus Sucre and Adam Moore were taken off. Andrew Kittredge and Vidal Nuno taken off as the Rays um, reinstate those from the 60-day DL and also uh, brought in, for at least for the time being, claiming Oliver Drake, who was well-traveled last year. Yeah, I mean, I think the two things that probably stood out to me the most uh, not that it was a surprise, but I, I think you know maybe some people who don't follow the team as closely would have wondered why they moved on from Sucre. I mean, he seemed to do a pretty good job in that role, that backup catcher role. Didn't hit for high average, did provide some power uh, on occasion. Uh, certainly worked well with some of the pitchers. Blake Snell raved about him, obviously, at times. But I think you know by being around the team, I think you also got the sense that that position they felt could upgrade. And, and they're in an interesting situation, as they always are, it seems like, with this organization catcher-wise. But They've got, you know, the two young left-handers. I think Michael Perez certainly is ahead of Nick Chufo on the depth chart and, and a chance to make the team. And then the question is, do they go get a supplementary right-handed uh, hitting catcher, a la another version of Jesus Sucre, um, better in whichever regard, but that kind of guy. 
and let Perez be the primary uh, catcher. Obviously, the left-handed hitter is going to play more times against right-handed pitchers. Or do they go get a bigger name right-handed hitting catcher and Perez is kind of the backup and, and kind of the other guy in that situation? I think there's two ways they could go there. My sense is they're first going to explore the market to find a big hitter, and that catcher will be more of the supplementary type. And, and you know, it's not even out of the question that Sucre could come back on a minor league deal, but I think they feel like they can upgrade in that position. And it certainly would make sense. And the fact that he did pass through waivers means that nobody was going to keep him just at the price he was at. So I think that shows where the market is right now on, on, on Jesus, and we'll see how it – I hope it goes well for him. Um, but we'll see also how it goes for the Rays. Um, the other thing now with the GM meetings going on is the Rays are going to have to figure out the, the roster over the next, oh, I would say, what, two weeks? Because the 20th is the date that the Rays have to decide who to add to the 40-man. And since they're at 39 on the roster, that means they're going to have to remove some guys via trade, via waivers, via some way between now and then. Yeah, and I think there's two key dates to keep in mind here. One is November 20th, as you say, and they've got a group of, you know, I mean, obviously you can always keep adding on, but I think, you know, fair to say there's a group of six prospects that they're going to give some serious consideration to adding, and, and maybe four of them. I don't know. You know some of this, mm-hmm. obviously, much better than anyone else. And But let's say, you know, roughly four, give or take one or two, that they're going to want to add to the roster. They've got to clear out some space. The other deadline of interest is uh, November 30th, which is the non-tender deadline. Now, by getting rid of Sucre and Nuno, they've kind of cleaned out and had them more. They've cleaned off their list of arbitration-eligible players. The one that I'm curious about, not that they would non-tender him, but is C.J. Crone, who I do think they're going to move on from. I think that's where they're going to try and upgrade their lineup with a better right-handed hitter. And it would behoove them to trade him before the non-tender deadline because you just run the risk of a freak injury or something like that where once the player's tendered, his contract is a guaranteed contract. And then... By doing so, if they're going to trade them by November 30th, if they can do it by November 20th, they pick up that roster spot to add a prospect and don't have to run the risk of losing someone else first and then turn around and trade Crone if you're trading him for minor league players who aren't on the roster, and then you would have uh, been able to take advantage of another spot that way. Which is where the GM meetings are very useful now because there is a chance to get in front of other clubs and determine, okay, what's the value of a player? What are our options as we move closer to that deadline? Right, and you know, and one... Typically, there's not business done at the GM meetings. I can think of, you know, maybe over the last 10 years, one trade or, or so that happened there. But I also remember the one year the Rays were so eager to get going, they made the trade for Brad Miller and Logan Morrison mm-hmm. and Danny Farquhar before the GM meeting. So I remember going to the GM meetings. They have an availability on Tuesday and Wednesday with all the GMs and actually being in a position to go talk to the Seattle GM about the players the Rays had just acquired. So... That obviously hasn't happened this year and because I think the way the World Series and the GM meetings, the compression in the schedule between the two, there really wasn't time. There have been a couple of moves in baseball, you know, not involving the Rays, uh, where there was a trade or two. There have been some signings or re-signings. So it's not out of the question, but it was unlikely there would be business done at the GM meetings. But obviously the team is there. And we also don't know the status of Heim Bloom, the senior vice mm-hmm. president of the Rays, who was a, a candidate, actually one of the final two for the Mets GM job, and is in the discussion, uh, as far as we know, still to this point for the Giants GM job. They're actually looking to hire two people uh, in the Giants front office, kind of an overall president of baseball ops and a GM, and he's in the conversation for one or maybe even both of those positions. It should be a very interesting couple of weeks uh, for sure uh, as we really get into the heart of the offseason. Mark, thanks very much for the time, and uh, who knows, we may be talking soon if uh, the Rays do have a Cy Young winner. You never know, Neil, and it's obviously uh, I think 
Blake has a really good chance, but like I said, I don't think it's automatic. I think there are going to be some voters who hold the innings against them. So I'll be curious to see how that unfolds here. Uh, November 14th is the day. It also happens to be someone's birthday who's on this phone call, but we'll be working on that birthday. And that wouldn't be me, so that would be Mark, and we certainly appreciate him on the podcast. If Blake wins, we will have a podcast about that, and certainly we'll have others as news develops. Thanks very much for being with us. We'll talk to you soon.